Hey everyone, welcome to part two of the Rude and Digital Justice Lab collaboration. Just want to send a quick shout out to the NSA, CCSA, <laughs> FBI, CSIS, CSIS, not CCSA. What's that? Uh, it's something else. Canadian Security Center. <laughs> really unrelated. Charter schools in California, but you know, we're excited to be here with all of you. Rudesters. I'm Daniela, a public health researcher and anti-racist queer activist. My name's Michael. I'm an educator, a school leader, and a creative artist. I'm Emily, an anthropologist, columnist, and activist. And this is Rude, a podcast where we push back. Last episode, We took you and ourselves through why we should all care about privacy, surveillance, and what's happening with our data. We hope you've been reading every single terms and conditions since. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. But really, we spoke about how slowly, one click at a time, we're handing over our daily lives and agreeing to a new form of control and monitoring. We've become hushed around our phones. We've become our own surveillance state, cameras in hand, monitoring each other. But we also see surveillance exacerbating the same old inequalities. Black and brown people are surveilled more heavily than white folks, duh. (laughs) And poor people are surveilled more heavily than middle-class and upper-class individuals. And although some of us might not feel the consequences of this hyper-surveillance or feel them the same way, they do exist. Companies are starting to not only track and predict our behavior, but full-out control it. Damn, that's gloomy. But there can also be hope. What? Yeah, that's a thing. Okay. (laughs) Talk about it. Yeah, I think we we lost sight of that possibility in the last episode. But in this one, we want to highlight some solutions and some actual things that we can do to reverse this sense of despair. Yeah. Our goal here isn't to just dump all the terrifying things that can come out of this digital future slash present. We're going to talk about the exciting ways individuals, organizations, and communities are pushing back to ensure our digital world and real world are both more just, to change the system of surveillance. Speaking of communities pushing back, in Toronto, where I live now, there's been a nonstop smart city scandal, and it is kind of like a Black Mirror show in a way. Um, Have either of you heard of Sidewalk Labs or the Keyside Project? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have. Yeah, so for listeners who may not be that familiar, essentially Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, has been working quietly to build a brand new neighborhood in East Toronto that is, in their words, being built from the internet up. And some of this community pushback um, we will be touching on later in the episode. You know, I've been hearing this term smart cities for a while now, Mm -hmm. and I'm always a bit apprehensive about the smart part in smart cities. Like, smart for who? I think that ideally smart cities should be defined as smart only if public services are equitable, accessible, and inclusive. But I don't think Sidewalk Labs is about that life. Nope. No, definitely not. It makes me think, I mean, back in the first episode, we talked about how government is trying to control our life, how public transit is is tracking us, about how smart cameras is affecting our lives. Uh, There's also some really 
really weird innovation happening in the workplace right now. Companies tracking workers' screen by taking screenshots without them knowing. Uh, factories putting bracelets on their workers to monitor them, which is exactly the same technology that's being used for people in parole right now. So this is really, is this really the kind of thing that we want to be embedded in our infrastructure, in our public spaces, where we walk, where we just live? Is that really a smart idea? <laughs> So, remember Brenda from the last episode? I do. <laughs> I remember Brenda. <laughs> well done, Michael. Quick reminder for everybody else. She's the director of the Privacy, Technology, and Surveillance Project at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. She gave us a better picture of what this whole smart city might look like and some of the questions we should be asking, as well as some of the potential outcomes if privacy isn't part of the design from the beginning. And if people aren't part of the conversation because Google and the government forgot we the people existed, which is what has happened. Oops. <laughs> yeah. So here's Brenda. So the smart city is all about a vision of technology as a force for good and the idea that data can be used to learn about patterns that matter and make things better, make things flow more smoothly, make things better. So the problem with that is that it's based on the idea that data should be collected on city streets. So I like data, I like numbers, I like stats. So I'm not inherently against making cities more efficient and using data to improve city services. I think it's really cool when your yeah. bus shows up on time. <laughs> no, for <laughs> sure. It's the future in some way, but how we allow it and who owns and uses the data matters. Exactly. She says another important piece about just how massive Sidewalk Toronto's Keyside project is. Imagine this. And we're talking not just a little bit of data. We're talking about embedding sensors and cameras and LIDAR and radar and computer vision, all different kinds of sensors for different purposes uh, throughout the infrastructure of a neighborhood. We think about surveillance a lot of times as something that happens online. We're all very familiar with the idea that when we go online, there's all kinds of different ways that we're tracked and that our behavior is recorded and that then companies are using that information to try and influence us. Keyside is quite literally being pitched as the first city built from the internet up. So we need to ask the question, is that internet model of tracking and surveillance and monetization of data something that we want to import onto our city streets? Is that the right model for a livable, sustainable neighborhood? Those are really big questions, yeah. and we think that we should be answering them as a community yeah. before, we, you know, before we move forward on this. Wow, that's pretty, sh I mean, like, personally, I'm just shocked at the lack of thought and 
consideration that we've given to this digital age. It seems like it's just descended upon us and the people are on the receiving end of some pretty major movements that they had no hand in conceiving of in the first place. And I wonder, like, I really wonder what the cost of... Isn't Facebook's motto, move fast and break things? It definitely is, yes. What is the cost of that? Remember when Facebook was being questioned by the U.S. Senate how Mm -hmm. funny that was (laughs) (laughs) because people were basically had no idea what was going on I think that's probably a lack of it a a part of it that people are not thinking about it because they don't understand what's going on Mm. Um, and it's also why sometimes they're not using the powers that they do have like in Toronto for the sidewalk labs the city council was just not even consulted or didn't vote on this. It went completely over their head. I'm thinking if uh, elected officials were more competent in those things, <laughs> uh, probably they would have done something. Uh, but um, they let it go over without even asking the real questions. Yeah, there has been some mobilizing. Um, in Toronto around sidewalk. Uh, People have been writing op-eds. Community groups have been really vocal about it. I think specifically the Digital Justice Lab, Tech Reset Canada, um, Bianca Wiley, Nazma Ahmed have really been leading a lot of these conversations and engaging. And we're starting to see the kind of collective action that's required to reset this project and ask the real fundamental questions. So you can go on Twitter and check out hashtag block sidewalk. There's a lot of community conversations happening there. Hmm. And in early March of this year, 2019, the CCLA with Brenda published this open letter threatening to take Waterfront Toronto and their lack of public accountability for this project to the courts to all levels of government. So the city, provincial, and federal governments, uh, they're asking to, I quote from their letter, control, alt, delete on sidewalk labs. Lol. (laughs) (laughs) So the governments can put in these safeguards for public data that we need. Fix that shit. Exactly. I think that's what they are saying. Like, instead of that move fast and break things approach, they want to slow down and fix it. Mm. Conserve. (laughs) (laughs) But if they're threatening to sue, it means that there are some legal safeguards that exist, at least in Canada. So not necessarily everybody everywhere could use that route, but it's definitely an option here. Uh, In the conversation that I had with Desmond Cole, um, so a member from last episode, journalist, uh, activist based in Toronto, um, he also told me the story of a technology that was almost implemented in Toronto and Here's how it was stopped from being implemented. Um, Last summer, Toronto had a record level of gun violence and gun-related fatalities. And in response to that, the mayor of the city of Toronto, one of his interventions, John Tory, was to introduce an item at our police services board for a technology called Shot Spotter. This is a technology that I believe was developed in Chicago. And the point of ShotSpotter essentially is to put microphones in neighborhoods and that these microphones are able to triangulate sound to pinpoint location. So they can basically tell you with this technology, they say, where a shot in a community has been fired. Mayor Tory introduced this in the middle of this summer of gun violence, right after a massacre on one of our major streets. Okay. 
the problem with that massacre was not that we didn't know where the bullets were coming from. The bullets were entering people's bodies and killing them. But he very cynically introduced uh, a walk-on item that had not been on the agenda that month saying we need this shot spotter technology to find out where the bullets are and this will somehow stop gun violence in Toronto. What the mayor didn't tell everybody is that the company that created shot spotter has been lobbying him since literally his first week in office back in uh, 2015. And so he cynically, as I said, used that opportunity where the city was in panic over a mass shooting on a major street to introduce this technology. We know that this technology is for listening in neighborhoods. It's, it's not necessarily for detecting where gunshots are fired because that doesn't help you stop crime. It's for listening in neighborhoods. It's for surveilling in neighborhoods. And just last month, we learned that the city is not going ahead with that proposal anymore. How come? Because they were afraid of the legal implications. And so I guess their lawyers went over the way that this technology has been rolled out in other places and the kinds of laws that have been uh, used to challenge it. And they looked at Canadian law and they said, someone's going to hold up this thing in court and it's going to cost us more than it's worth in order to bring it into Toronto. So a proposal that was thrown up in haste to try and show that the city was doing something and to introduce a, a very new form of surveillance in the middle of a crisis was ultimately canceled. Okay, so that's a concrete example of the importance of the rule of law and how the courts can be used as a deterrent. It's also interesting to note that this measure was introduced in a moment of crisis because uh, usually these are the times when governments and companies come in with their really bad ideas and people's reaction are like, oh my God, yes, sign my liberties away uh, because I'm scared. So in this case, thank God, the Toronto people were vigilant, um, but people are not always. So it's just a really good reminder that, especially in time of crisis, we need to be careful. Sometimes building a campaign and using the courts can be helpful, but what else can be helpful? Some solutions can be reclaiming these tools for our own safety. The question that I've been thinking about a lot is, what about digital tech for the people, by the people? Actually, there was a conference uh, held recently in Hawaii. Um, it was basically indigenous organizations coming together to plan how to use AI in order to preserve Indigenous cultures, languages, and ways of knowing. Wow, I think that's super important, especially since non-Indigenous folks so often stereotype Indigenous peoples as being behind the curve of tech and industry. Yeah, there's a really cool Indigenous organization in Canada called Imaginative, and they do a lot of work imagining Indigenous futures and actually inserting Indigenous understandings into digital tech and media as a form of really cool resistance. And I think that's even more exciting because Indigenous folks are the subject of so much surveillance and tracking and have been. There are ways that we can reclaim our own data to make it work for us instead of against us. One way of fighting back that we haven't touched on yet is ironically collecting data. I know specifically in the race conversation that we have in Canada, that's often a thing that people call for uh, more data and more disaggregated data um, because we're uncomfortable having conversation about race. We don't want to have info on it. And that kind of reinforces the lack of uh, 
uh, tools for people to be able to build campaigns. So I know that's at least one area in which more information would be helpful. There's actually been some interesting work done in this realm by the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Sorry to bring this conversation back to Toronto again. (laughs) Wow, you've only lived there, what, like six months and already it's the center (laughs) of the universe. Leave me alone. Says the American living in Italy. Jealous that like US is not the center of the universe anymore. (laughs) Look, it is still, okay? Wow. (laughs) Anyway, I talked to one of the authors of a groundbreaking report and I will let him tell you about it. So my name is Sunil Gurmukh. I'm a lawyer at the Ontario Human Rights Commission. I focus on litigation and inquiries, and I'm working on the Commission's inquiry into racial profiling and racial discrimination of black people by the Toronto Police Service. So the role of the Commission is basically to address systemic discrimination, patterns of discrimination. Concerns about anti-black racism in policing in Toronto have persisted for over 40 years. In November of 2017, the Commission announced its inquiry into racial profiling and racial discrimination of black people by the Toronto Police Service. The inquiry is unique because it marries the lived experiences of black people and case law with hard data, something that's often missing. And so on December 10th of 2018, the Commission released a collective impact, the Commission's interim report Mm -hmm. on the inquiry. We have serious concerns about racial profiling and racial discrimination of black people by the TPS in three areas. Use of force, stops, questioning, searches, and charges. So between 2013 and 2017, according to data obtained by the commission from the Special Investigations Unit and analyzed by a criminologist, Dr. Scott Wortley, our expert in the inquiry, a black person was nearly four times more likely than a white person to be involved in a Toronto Police Service use of force incident that resulted in serious injury or death, nearly 20 times more likely than a white person to be involved in a fatal shooting by the TPS. We also looked at SIU director's reports of investigations involving black people from 2013 to 2017. And those reports revealed a lack of a legal basis for police stopping or detaining black people in the first place, inappropriate or unjustified searches, and unnecessary charges or arrests. Yeah, so I think this is something that the black community has known for a long time, but it's so important to have the stats to back it up. Mm -hmm. What do you see the impact of these specific statistics to be? They are alarming. Yeah, the word that the chief commissioner used was disturbing, and they are disturbing. Mm -hmm. So what's the impact of these numbers? Well, we take the narrative away from being anecdotal and we actually have some hard data. And that's the goal, that's one of the goals of the inquiry. And so you're right, you know, Valerie Steele, who spoke at the launch of the interim report, and she said at the launch that this report is not news to the black community. She said, it's very reasonable to say that things haven't changed and it's time for action. Quote, no more studies, no more hand-wringing, no more empty gestures. This must stop. 
Well, there have been over 30 years of reports calling for race-based data collection in policing. So what the commission did is it made a written deputation urging the board to require the Toronto Police Service to collect race-based data and to do so by January 2020 and publicly release the data. So data can be a way to draw attention to an issue and create social change, if in the hands of the right people. Very important. Mm -hmm. When we consider this to be the case, it becomes so much more obvious that the issue here is not the technology itself, but as we've been saying, who's using it and why. Desmond Cole also spoke of the role of facts in turning around public support for campaigns. One example he gave um, is how a broad alliance fought against the presence of cops in schools in Toronto and how that alliance actually won. We had police officers in both major school boards, public school boards in Toronto. Now we only have them in one because a couple of years ago, um, education, not incarceration, Black Lives Matter Toronto, um, and Jane Finch Action Against Poverty and a number of community groups who had been working against this issue for a decade were finally able to remove police from the biggest board in the city, the Toronto Public Board. Um, but those schools were a site of daily, essentially mundane surveillance where for generations in this country, you didn't have police in schools. And suddenly after a shooting, in a school, which had not really happened in Toronto before. It's those crisis points that start it. But I think it's important to understand that the crisis points are used to validate a kind of surveillance that the police want to conduct every day anyway. And in fighting back against that, we said, okay, in theory, you want to believe that police in schools will make children more safe. Where is the evidence for that? Because here is all the evidence that shows that specific children are made completely unsafe by this policy. Certain children don't want to come to school anymore. Certain children, when they do come to school, are surveilled, end up being suspended because of a needless interaction with a police officer, just end up having negative outcomes. For those young people who were never afraid of the police, it's a negligible thing. They see the cop, they see the cop anywhere they would oh, always see a cop at the mall in their neighborhood. They're not scared. They're not worried about anything because police are not there for them. But we were able to demonstrate that this is making a lot of students, undocumented students, black students, students with disabilities, far less safe in their schools. And I think that that was effective. What Desmond's talking about is the school-to-prison pipeline and the ways in which our schools funnel students directly into the prison industrial complex and often recreate the same circumstances that people face in prisons themselves. And that really resonates with me as a school leader. It was actually earlier this year that as part of the founding team of a new school in Los Angeles, we had to make the difficult decision of whether or not to install security cameras in our own school. 
And ultimately, the logic came down to whether we could or could not constantly and adequately monitor the amount of property that we had on the premises at all times. And ironically enough, of the three incidents that have taken place over the course of this year, only one of those has been resolved using the security cameras. And at the end of that incident, it came to light that I really, rather than having combed through hours of security footage, actually could have just called my fellow colleague and asked him what he thought had happened to the bag that had disappeared that belonged to one of our students. So the irony of it is that we often think of tech as making our lives easier. But in this case, not only did it make my job more difficult, it also replicated the conditions of surveillance that we try so hard to break for our students. I'm challenged by this notion in a pretty deep way, especially given the demographics that I work with and that our school serves. We have a large number of young people in our student population who have either just come out of prison, are on parole or probation, even have ankle tracking bracelets because they're on house arrest as a condition of their parole. And so it really makes me wonder, how can we strengthen our community to rely on each other rather than relying on these tools of surveillance? And if we are to bring them into our schools, what space does that leave for our young people that lack surveillance? Where can they go to find privacy of their own? We think surveillance makes us safer. We've accepted it as a must, as a necessary evil. In the conversation that I had with Desmond, he also challenged this received wisdom. Indeed, I think I think how I feel about this is that surveillance in all of its forms has often become a stand-in for strong community. Uh, we don't want to have to watch the streets to see what is happening there, so we erect cameras and we digitally record and store information so that we can go about our business essentially in ignorance of our own communities. That's what we're being sold, and it's a very um, tantalizing proposition for a lot of people. Somebody else will watch my community so that I don't have to. That's the same thing as having police run all over the place, right? It's a completely inefficient way to monitor and uh, control and resolve what's happening in communities if there's a problem. But hey, at least I personally don't have to be responsible for it anymore. You're absolutely right that this is about a culture shift. If we're going to move away from these technologies, we have to start talking about why things in our communities don't work the way that we want them to. Why our communities don't feel safe in a way that we want them to. Um, Let me go back to this practice of carding, this practice of stopping people who are not suspected of a crime and taking their personal information. This practice has run wild, not just in Toronto, but across Ontario and across Canada. We just got a report yesterday from Halifax, Nova Scotia, on the east coast of Canada. And a black person in Halifax, Nova Scotia is six times more likely than a white person to be stopped and non-criminally documented by the police. So this is a nationwide issue. Um... I have very often in advocating against this practice, I have asked the people that we talked about at the beginning of this discussion, white people with class privilege, I have asked them, why don't you intervene? 
when you see this practice happening because you know you guys love data and we have the data to show that it's disproportionately and unfairly happening to black people and to indigenous people, to poor people, to people with disabilities and others. Why don't you intervene? The answer that I get over and over from white middle class people is that, well, what about my safety? So you can watch a person be robbed of all of their safety and security in the community. And the only thing you can think of is what about mine? And so your privilege to ignore what's happening to other people is valuable to you. That is the point at which we need to challenge people and say, what does community really mean to you? Does a safe community mean you never have to serve your own, fulfill your own responsibility to the community because you've hired someone to do it for you. And if that person runs wild with it, if that person is discriminatory with it, that you now, because it's been outsourced, will not take responsibility for it. We have to talk about building community as a response to surveillance, because ultimately for me, that's where this problem begins. So what is eroding communities and how do we make them stronger? Well, Desmond talks a lot about strengthening community in order to solve our challenges with Big Brother, right? Uh, I think in part one of this two-part series, you might recall that much of digital technology is currently being used as a result of mistrust and suspicion. It has this chilling effect that we talked about, all of which is exacerbated rather than made better by the technology itself. White people in particular uh, resort to surveillance to create safety. Um, notion of safety that's very much uh, rooted in the fear of the other. And actually, I said white people, I meant white women. <laughs> well, not all of them, but many of them that feel safe only when men of color in particular uh, are being surveilled by cops uh, and they are not walking on the same sidewalks as they are. Mm-hmm. I think some progressive white people will think that the direct cop surveillance isn't cool but that cameras are the nicer non-violent surveillance without a gun. And it's important to note that they have the same effect. So we do need to be aware of this. Outsourcing safety to technology is too much of an easy idea to be a good one. To build stronger communities, we also need to break social isolation. We live online and the online world can be really isolating for folks. You know, we've all been there. That whole comparing each other and feeling really bad about our lives, having low self-esteem because what others are putting up on, on Instagram or on Facebook. Yeah. And it's addictive. The, the reason we don't log off is because we want to have those likes. We want to have that social approval. And it puts us into this loop of we think we go there to feel good, but we actually feel bad. And then we go back into feel good and there's no <laughs> way out of that loop. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's actually science to back that up. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that humans release and it plays a role in our kind of pleasure and reward systems. And our social media use has actually been likened to addiction. So those little red notifications that we see on our screens sort of flood our brains with dopamine. And it's a very interesting mental health effect that we don't know much about yet um, longitudinally when it comes to social media because we haven't seen this before. So yes, it's about many levels of mental health, but it's also about physical health. Social media, just like surveillance, puts us under stress, and unregulated stress hormones have known detrimental effects on our bodies. You know, in some crazy way, 
This reminds me of the whole cigarette companies getting sued thing from the 90s. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which actually played a huge part in changing the influence of these companies on society today. Like, could we do that for big tech companies? That would be amazing. Yeah, I don't know if we can, but this would definitely lead to a culture shift. Um, because right now, for a lot of people, it would seem impossible to live without social media. True. And for some people, being able to join online communities has truly been life-saving. I'm thinking about disability justice. I'm thinking about people being able to support each other. I'm thinking about queer folks where people can connect with each other online when they've been really isolated in the past, especially outside of major urban centers. These shared experiences that people can have online and access to supportive and safe communities is really important. So tech isn't inherently bad. We just tend to use it in bad ways. But at the end of the day, why can't we have what we talked about earlier? Technology for the people, by the people. So what are we all taking away from this? How can we contribute to the systemic change that needs to happen? One of my main takeaways is a need for more caring communities. We need to build communities that stand, that last, that don't cut people out when they fuck up. Because when we do that, we lose folks. And this change relies on all of us. Lawyers could take legal action against companies and governments. Tech people could design by and for the most marginalized. Community organizers should continue bringing our communities together in ways that make us less reliant on surveillance technologies. Policy people could legislate on equitable smart cities and data sovereignty. Coders and engineers could sign a type of Hippocratic oath, like a do-no-harm for the tech world. Yeah, and maybe, just maybe, if we organize as people, we could be the ones writing the terms and conditions or end-user license agreements and make the companies sign them instead. If we did all that, we would definitely be getting closer to systemic change. But what about us? Well, I think the first thing that I'm going to do is go back to my school and sit down with my colleagues, the students, and really figure out if we need cameras, if it's something that we all want. What added benefit do they provide, if anything? I think that's going to probably be a really good conversation. Yeah, for sure. Myself, personally, um, in the last couple months, I've been logging off more on social media and adding... Um, I guess little apps that you can have that deletes your newsfeed or deletes some as the ads or some aspect of it that makes it a little bit less addictive. And that's something that I definitely want to look in, continue to look into mm -hmm. um, because of what we're doing professionally. Sometimes we cannot just completely delete our, all of our social media accounts. That's a very yeah. you know easy solution. People are just like deleted. But sometimes you cannot, but there's still stuff that I want to look more into in terms of how can I make it less bad and how can I not be so addicted and how can I have less of the downsides yeah. effect. And on have me. more control. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm currently working at a human rights organization that isn't really that plugged in no pun intended, to conversations around digital uh, human rights and how all of the 
tech conversations that are happening right now really are connected to human rights. So I think what I'm going to do is talk more about that with people who may be unfamiliar and seem to be thinking about human rights only in the ways that we've understood them until now. Yeah, I think it's really important for everyone, our listeners, ourselves, to start getting comfortable with those difficult conversations, even when they get uncomfortable. We need to root out and push back against inequities rather than automate them. That's what being rude is all about. We do what we do, but we want to know what you do. Follow us and tell us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the places that we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm. All the places that are going to monitor exactly these conversations. Yeah, for sure. Tell yeah. us. Yeah, maybe we can write an end user license agreement together. We want to send a special thank you to the Digital Justice Lab for making this two-part series possible. I also want to send a special thank you to SC Menace, the menace of South Central, for the incredible music that has accompanied us throughout these two episodes. Follow us, like us, reshare us, keep Root independent. Thank you to Kara and Nico, our writers and researchers. My name's Michael. I'm Daniela. I'm Emily. And this was Root.